Hello, and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. This week's episode is a discussion between me, Misi Fairfax, and Drs. Edward Bush and Abdelmalik Bull, Executive Board Members of AMEND and California Community College Administrators. They provide insights on how to create conditions for Black student success and discuss the need for deep reflection among college leadership to become agents of change for their institutions because every institutional decision has racial implications. Thank you for listening today and enjoy. Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. I'm thrilled to have on the line with us today, Dr. Edward Bush, president of Constantness River College and Dr. Abda Malik Bull, who is currently serving as a two-year visiting executive of educational excellence at the California College Chancellor's Office. Dynamic in their own right, they jointly serve as executive board members of the AMEND organization. AMEND, which stands for the African-American Male Education Network and Development Program, was created in 2006 to ensure the interests and success of Black students, faculty, staff, and administrators. Dr. Bush and Dr. Bull, along with their AMEND colleagues, are using their expertise broadly to increase the success of Black males at California's community colleges to create a new landscape for Black males to succeed. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, we really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you on the line and let's just jump in. Uh, one of the things that we continue to see are drops in enrollment across higher ed, especially our community colleges. One of the most troubling and staggering statistics is highly cited as a 21% drop in the number of black males enrolling at our community colleges. Schools that are seemingly highly accessible and affordable, close to where these students live and work. How would you describe the current landscape that black students find themselves navigating? Yeah, I, mean, I think one of the things, one, we, we really have to I'm step back and look at that data and see the, the people that's connected to the, the data and begin to think about what is the long-term impact for black males not gaining access to these institutions. I, I think we just first just need to take that in because oftentimes we just read data and we get anesthetized, desensitized to the impact or the meaning behind the, the data. So I would just welcome us and the listeners to really just take that in, especially when we think about the implications of not achieving post-secondary education, not earning an associate's degree, or not earning a bachelor's degree, then we know what is going to be the long-term impact in terms of breaking a cycle of poverty, um, being able to earn a livable wage, so on and so forth. Um, one of the things, though, I, I think community colleges have really rested on the idea that we are affordable and accessible. That means that equals success. Or uh, that means that students are going to have a positive experience or gravitate to those institutions because of that. While they may be accessible and affordable, doesn't mean it's necessarily conducive to African-American students. And so oftentimes the struggle that Black males uh, have is navigating a system and structure that is not designed for them. Um, where they show up and don't see themselves reflected in the curriculum. They're not represented inside of the, the classroom, either by students, other students. Oftentimes, Black male students find themselves as the only one inside the classroom, and they're definitely, more times than not, don't see themselves represented in front of the classroom. Um, how we teach, what we teach, how we serve, 
oftentimes is antithetical um, to Black male culture and, and experience. And so I think we need to recognize as community colleges that we need to be more than just accessible and affordable if we want to attract Black male students. And before I pass it to, to Dr. Bull, we know that success breeds success and failure breeds failure. And so when we look at the data, we see a perpetual right gap in opportunities and outcomes for Black male students. And so that message spreads. And I always ask ourselves this question. Um, you know, we said we want Black male students in our institution, but how can we good conscious actively recruit Black male students when we know what their experience is going to be inside of our institution? So we're recruiting them to, to fail uh, 50% race in college level math. We we re recruiting them to more than likely not persist from fall to spring semester. Are we recruiting them so they won't less likely to transfer or get a bachelor? Uh, yeah, to transfer or to get an associate's degree. So we need to fundamentally change the structure and what the colleges are. We're going to best serve um, black male students. Absolutely, and and I would echo and agree everything that Dr. Bush so eloquently stated. In addition to that, there has to be non-traditional methods. So we know the setting is not traditional in the sense that it wasn't constructed or designed for them to succeed. As was stated, the curriculum, the, the faculty, the staff, the representation, the symbolism, the engagement. And in essence, you're dealing li literally with the remnants of the preschool to prison pipelines. Even the criminalization of black males, you'll, 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 you'll experience that at these campuses. To offset that, I'll give you a personal example. I remember when I was on a college campus coming, um, going back to college, there was a black male counselor um, sitting at a table outside the library recruiting for the Mosier program, which is an Afrocentric program. And he literally yelled out to me, hey, you wanna sign up? And I was like, no, I'm good. I was in another recruiter, like in the military recruiter, you know, you see all these people. And he said, well, you ain't ready. And I said, what you mean? That sparked in me something that we had a cultural connection, how, you know, black men specifically speak to each other. I felt like I was at the basketball court or something. He spoke my language. That's what you mean you're ready. Ready for what? Then, I, then, then he, he knew the hook. But it was also a black man. And so there's a dynamic in which we can deal with this recruitment issue if you put the right people and we have to have non-traditional methods of engagement. We look at the ways in which we engage through social media through barbershops, through, you know, different settings, um, culturally relevant settings. And so I think part of the problem, the challenge is, there's this cookie cutter definition of success that has all this anecdotal data behind it. And then there's the essence of what success truly means. And so how do we then create these environments that are filled with people that can reflect these people and not just recruit, but retain them and then propel them to the next level. And so, are we equipped from the way that we dress, the way that we talk, the way that we engage? Um, you know, coming out of this COVID era, there has been a push to be very innovative and creative. And innovation creative is not just technology, but it's breaking traditional white supremacist structures of engaging and recruiting students. We know our black males work in three, four jobs. We know how they look at education as a feminine domain. We know all the pushbacks, the self-efficacy, self-esteem that's been impacted by them. And so I think we have to really look at even these recruitment methods and however we try to really regain the trust um, of our Black students by breaking down traditional norms in all of its variations. 
Thank you both. And there's a lot that you said there, but I want to break down a little bit further. And I, I wanted to start off with um, how your team defines success for Black males. What does that look like? What should that look like? Yeah, so that's a multifaceted de definition, right? So we, we do measure and track based on the traditional student outcome measures, right? Uh, persistence and retention, GPA, successful completion of English and math within their first year, um, graduation and, and transfer. But that's not enough, right? So we also define success around maintaining your, your identity, understanding and valuing your own cultural norms, rituals, and ways of being. That success is defined by understanding that you are put in a position to help improve your family and community that we are equipping you to be able to push towards liberation and freedom of Black people, uh, not only in this country, but, but, but abroad, that you're interconnected uh, with folks throughout a larger diaspora. Um, so we, we define success not just in terms of academic excellence, but also social, personal, and even spiritual understanding and excellence, because we understand that when we deal with Black people, that we need to see that whole person. And oftentimes the disconnect within these institutions is that we only teach students at a certain dimension on a certain level at the surface. And when we interact with black men, that we see them first as spiritual beings, like we understand their historical context, we understand their struggle, but we also understand the assets and history of excellence that they bring to the table. And we speak uh, to that. And so that allows us then to have extreme high level of expectations because we know their capacity and their potential to be uh, to be excellent. And so we load up our definitions of success on them. Yeah, you got to be a great student, but you also got to got to know who uh, the life story of Malcolm X. You also got to know who Marcus Garvey. You got to know who Ida B. Wells. You got to understand the definition of what it means to be Pan-African. I mean, all that are notions of success for us. And that they're their ancestors' wildest dreams. You know, that someone set the, uh, the, the footwork for them to be where they are today. Like someone literally died for them to have the opportunity to read and write, right? Like literally it was illegal, you know, for them to be literate. And that, that blood and those deaths are not in vain, right? And so we were, we we're a consistent production um, of that revolutionary struggle. And so for that, you enter these spaces with just a different level of energy. Like success for us in a minute is inserting the African in African-American, not by just symbolism, but by actually being African and everything that embodies being African, the collective, right? Operating in unity. Um, and so I think we are because I am and I am because we are. Like we literally live that. And so part of it, as Dr. Bush mentioned, is once you start to establish that self-efficacy and self-actualization, self-love, then you're able to even deal with rejection different. Like success is important. You go to an interview, you know, and you didn't get that job. Well, I still know I got the juice because I did the necessary work, right? I still, I'm not going to fall into deep depression or dislike who I am or think, think to maybe I should compromise who I am to fit in. No, maybe the situation wasn't meant for you. So part of that is important for us to really insert success in the person who they are. So the identity development piece is so essential 
It helps with persistence. It helps with rejection. It helps with transfer. It helps with taking to the next level. Um, and 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 a society that looks at that as cocky or bold, because there's a cycle, you know, um, analysis and you know and tra- traumatic understanding of who you are when you are actually content in being who you are. We are there to help people insert in themselves that you must love yourself and define yourself. And then you can project that success elsewhere. So for us, all that, the metrics are secondary. If you graduate, if you transfer, if you persist and you cannot engage your community, you cannot understand who you are as yourself, there is a missing antidote there. So we're, we're really focused on that piece. And that's why a lot of our efforts with our mentees, uh, our study abroad trips, a lot, a lot of our retreats focus on that being piece. And I mean, that's, that's, that's big. I want to come back around and piggyback on a couple powerful things that Dr. Bull mentioned. Uh, one is in terms of it, it contextualizes their experience. And so part of success and part of things we teach is putting them in position to give them the tools to be able to critique systems and structures. Because absent of that critique, they are going to, and many do, internalize all of the negative stereotypes and labels that is projected on them, right? That all the things that we hear about what it is that they don't have, the communities that they come from, quote unquote, broken families, not valuing education, the athlete or thug type of uh, dynamic or, or phenomenon. And then we begin to allow others to define what it means to be black and what it means to be a black male. And so we try to allow them to regain agency, most importantly, by creating a definition for themselves about who they are and who they're capable of being. And that's informed out of the excellence of who they are, as opposed to the deficit that society begins to project on the image of black male for the time in which they have the ability to turn on the television. And I'm well aware that I'm talking with two black male educators, right? And that representation is a key component, as you mentioned, of that black student success and supporting and developing and helping them to affirm and see their identity. But we all know, right, on the line, that there's a wide gap that exists between faculty and staff demographics. So I would just love to have a sense too, because I know you do a broad brush of work um, across your organization. I would love to know and, and to talk a little bit more about those conditions, because we're seeing a lot of folks who are leaving their teaching and faculty positions or have lost their jobs uh, during this pandemic. So what type of conditions are really needed to truly support Black faculty promotion, tenure, and those workloads to ensure their wellness and to ensure that they can show up and be there for our students? Yeah, we know that, you know, if you take a step back, any black person in education is not is working outside the job music description. Your auntie, your uncle, your cousin, your big bro, you're filling in some type of gap. Um, and as soon as that black student sees you, there's a certain connectivity there that their white counterparts, their non-black counterparts don't truly experience. So the conditions that a lot of black educators come in with is K through 12 or higher ed, that's consistent throughout. And we're filling some type of void. And part of the success is that family dynamic, right? That, that part of that, that cousin, that uncle, that love that we project onto our students to push them to the next level. 
Um, those are the conditions that we're seeing. Um, a lot of it is what's also affecting us onlyness. And onlyness is, you know, as Dr. Hopper mentioned, this, this, that you're the only person there. And you're, you're, you're also- are we, are we talking about Dr. Sean Harper? Yeah. All right. <laughs> and so he mentions, you know, in his, in his studies and research, you know, as PhD students kind of goes, that the only, only person in that space, you're feeling that. Um, and so then you deal with these microaggressions. And so one of the strategies I've seen that's come out that's been very effective lately is, you know, cluster hiring. Um, the challenge that I really pushed out to a lot of these institutions, especially those listening, is that there is no issue hiring eight, nine white faculty in a row or eight, nine black faculty in a row. But as soon, you know, but as soon as black folks, you know, the same again, thought of, oh, there's twos, twos again, you know, they're colluding, three is a gang, four is a mob, you know, five, maybe a protest, a revolution. That mindset is still there. And so those are some of the conditions that we see in hiring practices throughout the system, throughout the structures and say, okay, hey, we already met our quota there. We're the only people that are still defined by those quotas. Knowing that there is so much success and the data is, you know, um, you can, irrefutable data of how much it means for someone to look like you to be in front of you and how much that means. Yet we continuously and consistently regress and refer and defer back to the status quo. So okay, we met our quota there. So you see a, a theater uh, professor hired, okay, we, we hired a two, three back faculty, we're done. We're done for the, you know, we met our quota for the institution, right? Knowing that you would need to do a drastic overhaul change. So I think those are some of the conditions that faculty and staff um, and educators are facing. And then it also trickle, trickles down to the, to the students. Like if I'm not a capacity, you can't pour from a, a glass that's empty. So if I'm consistently, constantly, being attacked and microaggressed and you know experiencing, experiencing racial battle fatigue syndrome, when do I even have the energy and the space to even love on my students? And if I do come, as they say, hurt people, hurt people, that trauma isn't transferred over. I just got out of a board meeting where I just got pummeled, or I didn't get tenure, or I got microaggressed by my colleague, or I'm trying to do something dynamic and I come to my space and I don't even have the energy. So th this is some of the things that actually impacts the performance of folks that non-Black folks are dealing with. So this is some of the racialized trauma spaces that we have in education, the conditions. Um, part of it is uh, interpersonal and personal, but a lot of it is structural and systemic, and that requires a complete overhaul. I, I, I agree. I mean, one of the, you know, I'm not gonna, I think Dr. Bull covered it extremely well. I just wanted to emphasize the, the microaggressions that exist um, and what I hear for black faculty, that is something that they constantly have to navigate. And it's a microaggression that exists because as Dr. Bull mentioned, being the only one in the department, um, usually the newest one hired, so they get the worst schedules, um, trying to just navigate, trying to find their own voice uh, at the same time trying to make sure that no one could label them as being something other than rigorous. And so you oftentimes will see black faculty try to overcompensate just so they could gain the respect of their white, their white counterparts and cause them to exercise and act out in ways that's even counter to what's even in the best interest of black students that they care so deeply about. But then also you have microaggressions for students. Um, that often when you see issues that happens within the classroom, often that is happening with non-Black students challenging Black 
faculty members um, because they don't assign the same level of expertise. They do not get the same benefit of the doubt and their scholarship and the information that they're sharing constantly questioned. And so many black faculty are getting it in, in multiple directions in terms of this, this microaggression is make it very difficult uh, for us to, re to retain black faculty in the academy. And I would really uh, encourage the non-black non faculty that are listening to kind of understand like the, the, the weight that, that a lot of black faculty do carry, the responsibilities outside of our job description. And we don't, we don't get to clock in and clock out of the work sometimes. Like it follows us home. You know, um, some of our students share with us some deep, deep stuff uh, that we have to go and resolve. All the social economic insecurities that exist. I recall one time, you know, in my early earlier days, that the students would just hang out in my office, and um, you know, sometimes you know, students, you know, eighteen, nineteen, being around buckshus, um, and my colleagues would just be like, "Can y'all turn it down? You know, can y'all can y'all not hang out over here?" And the alternative is what? To be on the block? You know, the alternative is to be where? You know, to be in the cafeteria, right? And so I'm like, they are hanging out in like college, which is a dream for people. You know, and you're here saying you're not welcome. We do all the DEIA training, like inclusivity and diversity. And when it's in front of your face, you know, it's different. <laughs> so I really encourage people to really lean into that discomfort of like, what is it making me? And I had a conversation. I was like, what is it that's making you uncomfortable about this? They're like, well, I just, I don't, you know, I was like, are they bothering you from your work? Are they impacting you? No, they're not. Okay. So what is it? So there's a discomfort there. So I really encourage folks to, uh, to look at when we love on our students, it looks different. It looks different. Um, and so just, just be comfortable with being uncomfortable and checking some of your biases when it comes to that. I think you, uh, thank you both. Uh, I think the other part, right, as we're thinking about this, folks are looking at the long game, right? How do we close these longstanding systemic gaps? And for many folks, and let's be clear, many folks who don't have the these identities, um, it's tough for them to figure out and to think about how and the impact and how to figure this out. Not to say that that gets them away from doing the work, but there's also this paralysis that happens at, at times because of the uncomfortableness, right? Um, revealing what's, or talking more about what's actually happening, what they're seeing, what's happening in their data and other things that they're, you know, revealing about, not only about their institutions, but truly about themselves. So I would love to hear a little bit more about um, event strategies and how you're thinking about ways to really reform our institutions at the, the core and decenter that whiteness, remove those harmful norms. Yeah, I, I think one, it starts right at the top. You have to have a strong commitment um, from college leadership to engage in this work. And one, you have to you have to learn and be a student on uh, yourself. Um, secondly, you have to willing to, to exercise a level of courage, because anytime you have conversations around race, as Dr. Bull stated, um, folks are going to get uncomfortable. And so you have to be willing to push through the discomfort and have really critical conversations in your institution around the data. Um, that's, I think that's, that's extremely important. And then you're gonna have to invest. Um, you have to invest in the professional development by bringing in experts um, in this area. 
You have to in, in, invest in being able to make sure that you build institutional capacity by hiring people of color, the folks that have the expertise. Um, and then if you're not hiring people of color, it should be baseline competency that folks you hire in your institution have a track record of producing successful outcomes for students of color. And if they don't, then they are disqualified and incapable of teaching, serving, or leading in a diverse um, institution. Um, also, there needs to be some strict accountability around outcomes. Um, for example, there hasn't been a college president or vice president I'm aware of that's ever been fired because they failed to close a gap in achievement. But they have been fired because of money mismanagement, uh, for example, because that's what the institution values. And so the institution has to begin to really value closing of the achievement gap beyond lip service and that there's a cadence of accountability that's connected to it with that. Um, those you have targets and those targets are both in the aggregate and disaggregate and it is tracked and you report out that report out on that data and the activities and trap strategies associated with that in an ongoing way. And then you also have to be very intentional. And so if you close in the gap, are, are you talking about equity? Are you talking about racial equity? If so, say that. If your college is struggling to meet the educational needs of Black students, then you would need to say that we're focusing our efforts and resources on making sure that we're in better position to be able to serve Black students. So many times we fail to try to call out the problem. We lack intentionality. And I think that is extremely uh, crucial if we want to move the needle on this work. Uh, I suggest that one of the things that we do at my institution is that we look at, we interrogate all practices and policies. And we say that there's nothing in our institution that deserves our protection as long as we see disparate outcomes within our student populations. And so we constantly have to evaluate and look at doing things fundamentally different and to be radical in our, in our approach. And so you have to examine all your policies and practices, um, disaggregating at the course level and how faculty engage, why are certain students successful and why are certain students not? Um, do an audit of your curriculum to make sure that it is representative of the different contributions that folks of color have, have made. Um, so there's a, it's, it's a complex and it's, it's, it's a lot. I think fundamentally, you have to acknowledge that you have a problem. And many institutions fail to acknowledge that. Um, I say all the time that my institution is racist. Uh, and it is racist because we can, it is, our outcomes are predictable based on students' race and ethnicity. And you have to own that. And once you own that, then commit to doing the work um, to be more of an anti-racist or what we say pro-Black or pro-Brown uh, institutions. I mean, there's not much you can say after that. But you know, the funny thing is, they say this in all these what, seven step program. The first step to recovery is what? Admission. You know, so folks ain't admitting that they're That's racist. Right. You know, how can you move forward, as Dr. Bush said, if you're not willing to diagnose and call out the problem? I mean, we do it everywhere else, right? Hey, I'm such and such, and I'm an alcoholic. Hey, I'm such and such, you know, hey, I'm such and such institution. We're a racist institution because we can determine by our race how our students are going to pan out. And so I think. I mean, there's not much to be said after that, but just something that we can hopefully connect for the audience 
and how to truly move forward. Thank you both. And I, I love what you said too, because I think there's some the the there's this notion. Um, a lot of our colleges and universities are doing this anti-racist work. And I, I love what you said about the reality about being pro-black, pro-brown, pro that student to make sure that they get that support versus trying to bat down that I that identity um, of what they what they are and what those institutions are. Go ahead, Dr. Bush. No, absolutely. And we say it this way, right? So the the, how we distinguish pro-black or pro-brown institutions is that the college begins to center the experience of their black students by decentering whiteness as the default way of, of doing business. Um, and so when you think about just how our institutions function, there's a idea or myth around that there are certain things we do that is race neutral. You know, how do how we construct buildings? You know, how we allocate our, our resources. Um, we think many of our process is absent of bias, um, but we have to understand that every decision that we make in our institution has racial implications. One of the things that Dr. Mbull and I challenge um, administrators is to think about and reflect on their last five decisions that they made and do an audit of those last five decisions, whether they were very small appear to be inconsequential decisions are very big. Whatever was your last five, look at that. And then ask yourself a series of questions. You know, who most benefited from that decision? Were there unintended consequences? Were there losers as a result of that? Um, did it maintain current practices or did it change and, and begin to think through new practices with the understanding that the status quo was unacceptable if you had an institution where there's a gap in achievement that that exists. And so that's just a real practical tool to begin to think about the everyday things you do. So we use this example, like even how we design buildings, right? The default is if you go through a facilities master plan, you get with an architect, they talked about, we're going to pull for some type of European, some type of Greek and some type of Roman type of architecture motif. No one talks about West African. No one talks about Moorish tradition, right? No one talks about South American. Uh, Mayan or Aztec, and we asked this powerful question, what if a Latinx student was going into a math building and that math building was designed as, as a Mayan temple, right? Which makes sense, knowing the history and traditions dealing with math with Mayan people. What would that do for the psyche of a Latinx student who's been told by society, right, that math is difficult, that you're going to struggle, that math is not your thing, but what happens is, and what we fail to realize, is that white students are not successful simply because of racism. It's more convoluted than that. White students at our institutions are successful because white culture values are the norm. And it's the default way in which our system operates. So consciously and unconsciously, every experience that white students have validates who they are. Conversely, Everything we do in our institutions signals to black students that you don't belong here. In this physical representation, in its cultures and in its traditions, how we run convocation, how we run commencement, right? To them going inside the classroom and not seeing curriculum that reflects who they are or the people teach it reflecting who they are. And this is very important in relation to success. Like the point that Dr. Bush just made, like. Like 
when you talk about self-esteem, self-efficacy, we t- people are like, oh, what is symbolism? What does that mean? No, it actually has an impact. So you cannot talk about, you know, the importance of representation and symbolism and reflection without having an inextricable connection to self-efficacy and self-esteem. So self-esteem is defined as a degree to which people feel satisfied with themselves and feel valuable and worthy of respect. Self-efficacy refers to an individual's belief in his or her capacity to execute behaviors necessary to produce specific performance attainments, right? And so this reflects the confidence in the ability to control one's emotion and their motivation, their behavior, looking at their social environment, as you know, Dr. Bandura mentions. And we saw that. We saw that with um, anybody can be impacted by that. I'll give an example. Wilt Chamberlain. Wilt Chamberlain, known for scoring 100 points, he had a career free throw percentage of 51% his whole life. Shaq, Shaq, miss one, make one. The year that he scored 100 points, the game that he scored 100 points, he shot 28 from, of 32 from the, from the free throw line, 87%. But he shot underhand. And he was booed by the crowd. <laughs> and he never shot that again. And he never scored 100 points again. Mm-hmm. And so my question to Dr. Bush's point is, if Will Chamberlain, giant of a man, succumbed to the boos of the crowd, how often do we boo our students? By the way, we neglect them. And the symbolism he eloquently stated from the curriculum, from the buildings, from all these different aspects, right? From the decisions that we make. Um, one last piece I'm going to throw is accountability. It's so critical here because a lot of PD happens. They give you recommendations. The follow-up and follow-through at a lot of these institutions, a lot of just checkbox. Okay, well, we hired a consultant. Well, you know, we went to this PD or, you know, we went to this woke conference and we feel like we're woke now. They get emotionally charged, and then there's a set of outcomes. And so when you mentioned, well, how come we've never seen anybody fired for the, the data that's so you know deplorable um, and in the obligation gap? Because that is the obligation, really. And that's why I'm kind of hesitant sometimes to say that these gaps, uh, I don't really sometimes perceive them as gaps, in my personal opinion. Nothing connects to any organization. Or, I just think that this... The gap is, is part of the system and production, right? You maintain certain people at top, maintain certain people at bottom, and it's designed and structured that. We looked at when integration happened. We integrated the curriculum. We, we, didn't, we integrated the students. We never integrated the faculty. We went to all those black teachers, all laid off, all thrown away. Never integrated the curriculum, right? And we see we're still living with the remnants of that from Brown versus Board. So I think this is a long, deeper discussion, but the gaps I think are necessary to maintain those structures. And we have to have a completely different analysis and understanding of what that gap is. As I'm hearing as this, and I'm sure as our listeners are sitting with this as well, this normally with our, our office hours podcast, we usually have takeaways and recommendations, but truly with what Dr. Bush and Dr. Bull has shared with us, it is really about taking a step back and having a reflection on the type of work that you're doing as your institutions And really, um, this is an invitation to go even further in that work, to really, truly support these students. And many of our other historically excluded minoritized student populations, right, our our administrators, our staff, faculty, and others. I want to thank Dr. Bull and Dr. Bush for their time today. And and I do want to leave to say if there's any final words that you want to share with us before we get off the line. No, Misha, I just appreciate the opportunity uh, to share 
on the work that is taking place, be able to share our perspective. If you want to hear more about the work that Amen is doing, encourage your listeners to go to our website, www.a2mend.org. Um, there's a lot of rich information. Our contact information is on that on that website. So I'll just encourage your, your um, listeners to do that. And and I and I would just echo one piece that you mentioned earlier, and that's just to to reflect on yourself as an individual, as an educator. Are you complicit in maintaining these structures and these systems? Um, and if so, um, what are you going to do to reconcile that? How can you become an advocate? How can you become an agent of change? How can you activate your agency? Part of just having that deep reflection, introspection that we. We ask, you know, our students to consistently do in journal writings and reflections and like, was there a piece where you're self-evaluating or just because you're in the system, you made it, you're here to maintain it. So part of it, I want to really push folks to decolonize their mindsets, uh, decenter whiteness, um, really look at the students that are in front of you, um, ask who's missing, what can I do, how can I be, you know, of service to that, and understanding we are here to act ultimately liberate the minds of our students like education is the most powerful weapon in which you change the world as nelson mandela says and so weapons are only used at war we are at war here we're at war with a lot of ideas and thoughts and so we're at battle mode and so pick up your spear your book your your pen and let's get to work uh we we got we got some we got some heavy lifting to do we definitely appreciate you uh, inviting us and we highly encourage y'all if y'all could join us for the all african Education Summit happened in Ghana uh, this September. We're taking it worldwide. You know, this educational uh, you know, fight is, 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 is it's, it's something that's global. And so we're tapping in, encouraging all Africans uh, to really come up to that conference in Ghana. And that's also information on our website. And join us every, every March for the annual convention uh, on our website. Thank you again for having us. Thank you both. And, and thank you all for our listeners for joining Office Hours with EAB again. All of that information will be listed on um, eab.com. And, and thank you for joining. Thank you for listening. Please join us next week when we share advice from an executive search professional on how to attract and retain university staff during one of the most challenging labor markets most institutions have ever seen. Until then, thank you for your time.